Yes, it's a funny word, pronounced Enneagram, but it's not at all a strange system. The nine types of people it describes are close to what any culture would come up with if it divided itself into nine. The perfectionist, helper, achiever, romantic, observer, questioner, adventurer, asserter, and peace seeker. It helps us understand ourselves and gives us the compassion to understand diversity in people all the way to the fringe. Elizabeth Wagle on the Enneagram as a Standard for the DSM at Psychology Today. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, where we delve into the world of mental disorder. To overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. Hello and welcome to episode four of Redeeming Disorder. My name is Laura Bochansky, and I am thrilled about the guests we have on today. If you guys listened to last season, you know that I'm a huge fan of personality tests, while Spencer is a bit more of a skeptic. And while I don't believe they are hard and fast rules and could never tell us everything about a person, I do think they can help us understand how we see the world and how we interact with it and how that might be different from someone else. And those are all life tools that are so relevant when we're talking about mental health. And so the personality test we will be touching on today is called the Enneagram, something that's really helped me grow personally and relationally this year. And the guest we have on is an expert on it. And actually, since we had this interview, he started a brand new podcast called uh, Typology, and it's all about the Enneagram. So you should totally check that out, but not before you hear this awesome interview. And before I introduce our guest, I just want to make a note that I don't believe the Enneagram is a replacement for getting help for a mental disorder or going to therapy, but I just think it can be an awesome tool for understanding ourselves and why we may react to life struggles in the way that we do. So that said, let's dive on into the interview. We're thrilled to have Ian Crone with us today. Ian is a best-selling author, Enneagram teacher, speaker, psychotherapist, and Episcopal priest, and he's written three books, including a novel called Chasing Francis, a memoir called Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me, and most recently, he co-wrote a book about the Enneagram called The Road Back to You. So, Ian, thanks so much for being with us today. We're excited to dive into a lot of topics, Um, but uh, I thought we could start maybe just talking about your experience um, and how that started with the mental health world. Sure. Yeah. So um, I uh, I grew up in a in a home that uh, was uh, was a fairly troubled home. I had a father who was an alcoholic, died from alcoholism, and I uh, eventually later on to become a you know a, a psychotherapist and a priest and had my own struggles with. Uh, addictions with uh, alcohol and with 
you know, just compulsivity uh, in general. Um, I always laugh and say I could stand up at meetings and probably just say, my name is Ian and I'm not a gambler. Um, <laughs> just to say, it's probably the only thing I haven't been attracted to as a, uh, you know, a way of narcotizing or kind of, you know, soothing away my life inappropriately. Um, and so that's, yeah, I mean, that's just been my journey has been uh, in the world of uh, people who uh, are in various stages of trying to figure out how to be in the world in a healthy way. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Being in their best selves. Yeah. Ian, I'm excited to talk to you because I think you can have really interesting things to say both with your work and your own experience. Um, and hearing about your experience, it sounds like there's a lot um, people could learn from that you've overcome so much, as you said, you know, a gamut of different challenges. And I relate to, cause I have uh, an alcoholic parent. Um, and I have had those worries about, you know, is this going to cause, you know, an addiction in me? Did you ever have those worries or sort of hear the footsteps, so to speak with your struggles? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I don't know if I worried about it. You know, you, the, the funny thing about addictions is, is they're kind of like the tide. You know, they kind of, at least my, my experience has been, they, they sort of rise imperceptibly, you know. Uh, and you're, the way that that disease works is, you know, it's sort of a bad, you know, it's, a, it's a, sort of a bad punchline. It, you know, by the time you realize that the problem is here, it's already here. Mm. You, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like yeah. sort of built into it is this kind of refusal to, to you know, a friend of mine used to, kind of define denial is refusing to know what you know. <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, like you just kind willing, of refuse to know uh, what you know. Lack of self-awareness kind of, or like a willing delusion about the problem yeah. that's coming up. That's a good way to put it. I think a willing delusion is, is a good way to put it. You know, it's the ability to know and not know all at the same time. Yeah. 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 And I think people have that uh, experience, you know, even with, things we don't typically think of as addictions just in not necessarily having cognizance of what they're doing every day or their habits, you know, their reactions, they're sort of going around reacting to things, whether it's, you know, incessantly checking their phone or something else. Um, I think probably the lessons from addiction can translate to a lot. Yeah. I, I like to call it, I call that automatic self. Automatic you know? self. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, you're just, uh, you're sort of lost in, you know, the, the sort of the narrative of your own life, oblivious to anything that's happening outside of it. And mm. you're, you're kind of asleep, you know, you're kind of going through life in a semi-conscious state, just in your uh, living up in your head and all the narratives and the craziness yeah. Of, yeah. Your, of your life. And uh, lacking the self-awareness and the, the skills of self-observation to be able to step back and say, what is going on here? You know, what is true? What is not true? What am I? What am I believing right now? Is what I'm believing right now, in fact, true? You know, and <laughs> yeah. you know these are really very big questions um, that most people don't stop to ask very often. Yeah, I I would agree. You know, it seems that we're all having these conversations in our head in varying levels of consciousness, whether we're fully aware of them or it's just bubbling up from the subconscious. And taking mm-hmm. a look into that into the mind is is a crazy thing, but I, you know, I found, uh, personally that in, uh, meditation for me and a mindfulness practice that gaining that self-awareness has gone a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
um, <laughs> addiction. I've read different types of opinions on this, but I read this one article that said if you have a parent who has an addiction, you're like eight times more likely to have an addiction yourself. Um, so that kind of, I mean, that might be genetic or environmental uh, cause there. But what what do you think? You know, I... I don't know. I mean, I don't, you know what I mean? Like it's sort of Neither like, it's all, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I suspect and I, you mm-hmm. know, I suspect that there's a genetic proclivity or predisposition towards it. But, you know, um, it's for me, it's like, I don't really. How can you separate the two? It seems so hard. Yeah, to. I mean, where it comes from at a certain point is sort of like moot to me. You know, if it's if it's an issue, it's an issue. I don't, yeah. Where it comes from, it's like, well, no, mm-hmm. how do I deal with it? You know, it's like, yeah, what do, you do now. Um, that doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's you know, it makes for interesting conversation. Or if you're a researcher, I think it's important. But for me, I just like, I think it's the human condition has that. Yeah, mm. I, I don't know anybody who's not addicted. Do you know someone who's not addicted to something? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, may- uh, if you if you let addiction really count anything that truly is an addiction or a compulsion, absolutely, we're all addicted to things, for sure. I mean, even down to multiple things, food. Yeah, uh, like things. yeah, yeah. Um, like even the way you go to work. You know what I mean? Like in other words, like you know, people have you know we're, we we are easily patterned. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, so I sometimes people will you know, talk to you as though there's a, a a line or a barrier between you as a person in recovery and someone who isn't, right? And I'm always a little bit like, well, you know, what's your thing? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, mine is, what's yours? You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, it's I, almost I like you, you at least have the advantage of knowing what your thing is. Whereas, you right. know, uh, yeah. there are plenty of people who are addicted to caffeine and their phone and to, you know, a, a number of habits and, and wouldn't think of them as addictions at all. Right. I think that's true. And I love, that. I like- love having a guest that's willing to say, I don't know. Sorry. I, cause I have no idea either. And it's, it's refreshing yeah. cause it's like, we really know so little. And I think we only learn by having that openness. I'm just trying to learn here. You know, I, it's, uh, we don't really on the podcast, like pretend to have any expertise really. We try and learn from people as much as we can. And I think, you know, that's pretending me, not pretending, uh, to know things I don't helps me in in learning as much as i can from others i think that's a good good, that's a good spirit Mm -hmm. it seems like we keep circling around self-awareness and i know ian that you've talked about that a lot and the importance of that and how that can really transform your life um and i went sometimes when i think about it though I'm almost, it's almost feels safe to be not self-aware because when you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think um, self-awareness really has to do with, do you have a, an, a, an inner monitor, right? The, the ability to be able to reflect inwardly to monitor and regulate what's going on, you know, and, and to be able to, you know, to observe what's happening with a non-evaluative, uh, compassionate posture. Um, I think that change and healing really only takes place in the climate of compassion. I, I just, I don't, shame never works. Never, ever, ever works. It's just corrosive, you know. 
Um, and when we approach ourselves with compassion and kindness, what happens is, is I think our true selves feel safe to emerge. I think when we approach ourselves with shame, the natural instinct of the self is to run and hide. You know, shame is the fear of exposure, right? So it's, it's of being seen and deemed not enough, right? So if you create that climate inside, you will create a climate in which, you know, all kinds of, you know, in the dark, bad things grow, right? Just mm -hmm. ask your shower. So, so <laughs> if, you, if you create a climate of compassion where you can observe what you're doing and realize in the moment regularly, oh, so this has activated that, you know, and, yeah. and make different choices now because I know what's happening inside this narrative. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I know what story I'm in right now, and it's not the right story. Right. You know, so right. I think self-awareness just, I mean, not a, forget about just in relationships. It's terribly important in our relationships, but I mean, it's just a, you know, it's a key predictor of success in just about anything, you know. Well, I, when I, when we talk about self-awareness, I can't help but think of reality TV and specifically like Survivor, <laughs> which Spencer's been on twice. And I mean, the, what's fun about watching those shows is seeing people so not self-aware and, and, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I would be one of them, but, um, but I wonder I if there's something to learn. I don't know. I think the, pe um, the people who get on are the people who are either extremely self-aware and know exactly why they'll be entertaining or not self-aware at all <laughs> and entertaining because of that. So here's a question for you, though. Um, are those people self-aware or are they self-conscious? Mm -hmm. With the latter group, you're saying? Yeah. Hmm. I think uh, it's, not, it's not a biased question. I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I, I think what the, what the difference is. I think I would say. Yeah, I think I would say self-aware. I think, uh, or it's a lack. Of, I think it's a lack of self-awareness with some people, rather than being self-conscious. Where, uh, and you could be very self-aware and self-conscious, and that might be why you're entertaining. You know, you might uh, sort of have internal conflict, and conflict is one of the big things on reality TV. You know, the big three factors that they're looking for: conflict, sex, and humor. Um, so there could definitely be that element as well. But uh, did you have a different uh, sort of? No, I was angle just curious. I, I, actually, I never watch reality TV, so yeah. I don't. I don't really know. Um, it hasn't been. It hasn't been something I've had an opportunity to see, so I don't. Yeah. I don't really know. I mean, it's one, just, one, It's just reality. <laughs> one interesting aspect of it with self awareness is if you aren't self aware, um, it can. It it maybe gives you the opportunity to, to become self aware when you get. A ton of feedback you know whether it's social media or other people watching you interacting with you you get you know a hundred x the amount of external feedback you normally would in your everyday life socially and so if there's something that you maybe have been turning the blind eye toward in yourself it might be you'll have the opportunity to see it not everyone will take it but mm. um, i was actually wondering speaking of self-awareness and authenticity versus shame what are some of the what do you think are some of the subtle ways that shame can kind of creep in because you said often we're in these narratives and we don't even know it and i'm a big believer that uh authenticity is so tricky because you might be holding shame and not even knowing it or you know there might be little suppressions of what you really think even the smallest thing like phrasing an email a little more 
softly than you would because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. You know, I think even subtle things like that on some level might send yourself the message that authentically expressing yourself is a bad thing or might instill some kind of shame. I was just wondering what you think about that. Well, you know, shame is a very powerful force. Um, and I, I would assume probably your listeners know that the, the difference between guilt and shame is not nuanced. It's quite clear, you know, um, that guilt is the experience of remorse or regret mm-hmm. uh, for having done something wrong versus what we would call an ontological, right? That's a nice big word, <laughs> uh, reality, having to do with being, right? So with shame, it's, it's the belief that I am something wrong. Right, that I not that I made a mistake, but I am a mistake. Mm. Those are very, very different, um, you know, experiences. Yeah. So shame is, I guess the the easiest way to put it would be uh, the experience of not enough. I'm not enough. I'm, you know, I will always be not enough. Right. Well, that'll unleash a whole hailstorm of problems in your life if you're constantly running around with that in your you know if that's the wallpaper on the interior of your life is not enough that will activate all kinds of craziness and and misery really yeah. just just misery for you and for others you know mm-hmm. because you will either act shamefully or shamelessly <laughs> oh. do you see what i mean like yeah. you will act yeah. shamefully because you're full of shame or you act shamelessly as a way to deny the presence of shame so in your life. So you kind of try and escape it or rebel or something. Yeah, or just deny it, you know. Um, you look at people who are really, you know, sort of full-blown narcissists, you know, mm. no shame, mm. no shame, you know. So all to say that I think that, that you know, shame is uh, second to love, the most powerful force in the universe in some way. It's just, it, it's so, yeah. wow. it's so. Uh, apparent in our world and, and maybe in some ways by the by the shamelessness that we see around us you know there's a certain degree of shamelessness in our world so I think um, for people with addictions yeah. wrestling with shame is a gigantic task you know because underneath so much of what drives an addiction is the sense of not enough yeah mm. well I was going to ask about addiction do you think addictions can actually stem there where if you feel like not enough, then it seems as if that's the only reason you would seek enough from something external. You would think the new iPhone or the next hit or whatever it is, is going to make you enough. Do you think that is often the source of addictions? I think, um, I think that, you know, on the level of spirituality, yes. Um, I also think that what drives addictions is just the way the brain works too. Mm-hmm. I mean, just you know, having we a have- ton of dopamine or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, and the way that our mind gets into loops of thinking, you know, uh, that get grooved in and we just start, we fall into this pattern and we just start going, you know. I mean, I think one of the more exciting areas in, you know, the world of psychology uh, and addictions and among other things uh, is just what we're learning from brain science about how the mind works and how complicated and beautiful it is you know and but it's also a very dangerous neighborhood to travel in by yourself you know <laughs> the mind is a tr- you know, can be a very dangerous neighborhood when it gets going in the wrong direction you know? sure yeah i i think it's interesting Nate, 
two, they seem very different, but very similar at the same time, a psychotherapist and Episcopal priest. And the similarity dealing a lot with people who are experiencing a lot of shame. <laughs> and um, I mean, really? Uh, <laughs> well, that's what I imagine, at least I haven't had those. But is that true for you? You think people who come and see you, um, you know, as a priest or and then as a psychotherapist, similar I don't know anybody who's not touched by shame. I mean, mm. I don't, there is, there isn't anybody that's not touched by shame, yeah. but you know, the, the people I spend time with, I don't, I don't have currently have a practice, you know, but the people who I spend time with would, would, would come to spend time with me probably, um, because I, I, I'm an, I endeavor to be a non-judging presence, a non-anxious, non-judging presence. I try. I mean, that's my, that's my aim. Um, and they know that uh, I hope that I can provide a um, some soil in which you know new things can grow in in their lives. And it's it's very difficult for me to to it's like trying to get pesto off a of pasta for me to to get spirituality and psychology out okay. of the same box. I just don't think we're soup. You know, we 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 like to think that we're. We like bento boxes, you know, like over here's my mind and here's my body and yeah. here's my relationships <laughs> and here's this and that. I have my bento life. It's like, well, no, actually, it's a soup. It's a big, gigantic pot. And, you know, uh, you know, we're just, uh, we are so gorgeously complicated and beautiful and, but you know, befuddling and perplexing. Uh, I mean, I, you know, we really, next to God, we're the biggest mystery we have to deal with every day. You know, and there's something wonderful about it. And some days and other days, you know, it's just you want to bang your head against the wall because it's just so frustrating to figure out how to be human, you know, and to, to be human well in this mm. world, you know, very soulish, this thing, you know. <laughs> well, I think being having a non judgmental presence is probably the most critical to give people that ability to be human in that in those contexts. Because when I think about the people I can be open with it's the people who aren't judging me as i'm doing it well i mean yeah uh, well i say my prayers that i can do it well i'm a big fan of Brene brown who talks a lot about shame uh-huh. and uh she says the only antidote for shame is empathy and i'm just thinking you know where do we find empathy we find it some people find it in churches some not so much but <laughs> and well, then it depends, some find on, it depends with, on which one right yeah <laughs> Uh, and then some find it, you know, with a therapy group. Um, and then I'm just thinking of, of other places. And it's, I mean, the thing that every, whether you have a mental disorder or not, you're like you said, everyone experiences shame. So therefore, everyone needs empathy. Yeah. I think she also says, though, that, that, that sh- the antidote to shame is vulnerability. Mm. Right? That the that um, vulnerability, the ability to speak the truth about what's true in your life, you know, about what's happening on the inside of your life and to have it received by others in a non-judgmental way, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a loving way is really the, the wonderful antidote, you know, mm-hmm. um, finding those communities though is pretty hard. I don't, you know, I, I could take you to plenty of shaming AA meetings, you know, really? they're, they're, Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, anytime you put people into a room, there's a, there's a possibility that bad things can happen. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know, yeah. we tend to idealize things, you know, with, oh, 
all these AA meetings, they're just all great. It's like, no, actually, I've been to some pretty militant, you know, kind of like right. shaming, finger wagging AA meetings. Like, don't eat an aspirin. You know, you're going to go to, you know, it's like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> well, people are flawed. Um, you know, any movement must be flawed or totally. any group must be flawed if it has people. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, from your condo association to your church, trust me, everything in between <laughs> is in your office, everywhere. You put people together, there's politics, there's, you know, all kinds of dramas running in every direction, you know. And, and you know, that's why it's probably good to walk into every human community already, you know, in advance, forgiving it for all of the ways it's going to disappoint you, including your, including your marriage, you know what I mean, and your family. And you're, you just have to walk around, I think, kind of, and that's not a, I'm not trying to say that in any way that's a bummer. I think the, the faster you accept it, the, the happier everybody is. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. it's not resignation. I'm not resigning to that's the way the world is. It's like a surrendering. It's like saying, yeah, yeah I'm going to disappoint you and you're going to disappoint me. And But if you can find a community that can provide a space that will offer you kindness uh, and, you know, a sense of um, walking aside you know, walking mm-hmm. beside you. Right. That's a that's a rare and wonderful gift when you find it. I want to ask about that in conjunction with something you said a couple minutes ago, which was that we're soup, that, you know, we like to think our mind and body and everything are maybe disjoint or discreet, but really it's all connected. And I think we tend to think of ourselves as this thing that exists maybe between our eyes or in our heads, this uh, rider of our body vessel, you know, experiencing the world. Um, and it seems like that is very tied to what you just said, that we have a hard time accepting things as they are, accepting people and relationships as they are. You know, the world will inevitably be ways we don't want it to be, um, which will cause pain. And I'm just wondering, what's your perspective on how we might get past that or how we might cope? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I... I'm with the Buddhists on this one. I, I think I think that you know you 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 basically have to just accept the fact that there's a lot of suffering in life. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. In fact, I think, and I could be wrong about this. I was in a conversation with someone yesterday about it. I think the Latin root word for for suffering is to allow. To and, allow, huh? Yeah, to allow. And I think you you just have to acknowledge that you know pretty much at any moment in your life you're there are places where you feel not at home. You know, that's, that's, I think that's Jack Cornfield. You know, Jack Cornfield says that, the, well, I mean, maybe it's, maybe, I think it's Jack Hall, Jack Cornfield. He just talks about this idea that dukkha in, in Buddhism, you know, the idea of suffering is yeah. just the feeling of not at home in this world. You know that feeling? That feeling like things are not fitting, things are not yes. falling into harmony, places yes. are not falling into a place of peace and rest. Well, that's what it's like here. Sort of you know? that feeling of resistance to the stuff that, that you don't yeah. like or the, the experience of suffering. Yeah, and, and so the more you resist it, really, the worse it gets. I mean, right, you know, right. um, it's like telling a little kid who's got a, you know, a bad patch of poison ivy, don't scratch it. <laughs> yeah. right? If you scratch it, it will get worse. Well, when you scratch it, it feels really, really good when you scratch it. You know what I mean? It's like, right. well, I'm going to yeah. keep going, okay. You know, but if you say, well... Well, I think that's a lot of what we feel like in life, you know. Well, we it just seems like our yeah, it seems like our resistance is tied to our judgment of the thing as being bad, 
or as the thing as being something that's causing our suffering. And it goes back to what you said about judgment of others that, you know, when you, we, our judgment of others or being judgmental sort of frees people to be authentic. And, uh, it seems as if in the same sense, not judging our own experiences or not judging that suffering or resisting it, trying to be as accepting of our experience as possible can allow our, us to be free. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And I don't think that's just a Buddhist idea. I mean, I think that's a perennial spiritual idea. Yeah. Uh, that. And even if the Buddhists propagate it, you know, it's not like they own it, right? It could be just a truth oh, no. that they said, but it doesn't make it Buddhist. That's it's right. just something that exists, right? That's right. It's just a perennial truth that crosses, you know, crosses traditions. It's just, you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's an AA tradition, you know? I mean, it's like to accept the things I, you know, I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference, you know? Yeah. Um, no, I agree. I, I feel like I need to say that every day, <laughs> but, um, I, I kind of wonder what you think about perception. Sometimes it, like, let's say I'm in a bad mood I read a text and I could take that as just like a really mean text from somebody. But then if I wait a couple hours and I'm in a better mood, I'm like, oh, they weren't. They were just being direct, you know. And I think that's what you're saying is a little bit um, is, you know, sometimes our perception paints this picture that's not real. And um, if we just fix our perception, <laughs> a lot of things right. would be better. So that does speak to the Enneagram for a second. You know, the Enneagram is a, uh, you know, it's a wonderful tool. It's just one of lots of different tools that people can use to, you know, develop self-awareness. And it's not the Rosetta Stone of, you know, of the self-awareness world. But it's a useful tool. It's It's a good place for lots of people to start. And I think when you're in a situation like the one you're just describing, knowing what kinds of reactions you typically have that your personality pattern has is a really handy thing to know. Right. Mm-hmm. If you know, okay, this is where this sort of thing typically lands with me. You know, I read a text like this. This is where it lands, and and I know because I have enough self awareness, I can step back and go. I shouldn't answer this right now because <laughs> it has it has now it has launched a movie in my head that is now you know is <laughs> is slowly mushrooming into an opera. Right. You know that I probably if I wait three or four hours will look a lot different. Right? Yeah. You know, and so. <laughs> This also is like, you know, the difference between living reactively and living responsibly, you know, like when you have enough self-awareness, you can say, uh, I'm choosing to respond, not react. And when you're asleep, when you're an auto self, I mean, you're just going, right? You're just going inside of your, your way of being in the world. You're just in reactivity. You're like, a, you know... If you remember, you know, you've probably seen pictures of phone booths, but you're like somebody trapped in a phone booth with a with an angry hornet. That's just reactivity. You know yeah. what I mean? You're just yeah. swatting around. You're like, oh my god, you know, everything right. is just reacting <laughs> to everything, you know? Instead of being able to calmly respond to what life throws at you in the moment. That's what the Buddhists call equanimity, right? It's just yeah. yep. being able to say, whatever challenges life presents me with, I will respond with emotional balance mm-hmm. you know just emotional balance and and to not react in our lunacy and god we live in such a reactive world good night i mean right <laughs> goodness gracious i mean we've got i mean reactivity could be the end of us uh if, you know i don't want to get into a political bent here but <laughs> it's just it's just stunning to me yeah. how the digital world has 
turned us into reactive, um, reactively crazy people. Yeah, it's amazing. it just seems to me that that's such a it's such a we we are in the midst of a, a great failure of contemplation. You know, mm-hmm. there, there, there's no there's very little contemplative minds in the world. You know, that are able to um, be silent long enough to and observe long enough to figure out what's happening. It's all reacting. Yeah. All well, do you think that it's getting worse though? Because I actually feel as if technology is making us more of what we already are. I actually, I think people are slowly growing and I do think people are with meditation getting more popular. I think, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily expect this, but, uh, so much of everything you're saying I relate to as someone who's really into meditation and there's overlap between that and Buddhism. Um, I'm not, I'm not a Buddhist, but, uh, you know, talking about equanimity and respond, don't react. Um, you're really, a lot of what you're saying seems to be in line with that. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I wonder if you introduce the technology we have today, a thousand years ago, I imagine a lot of the same problems would arise. It oh, seems as def- if it's just uh, sure. exposing rather than corrupting. Yeah, I think, but I think that things in, in uh, <laughs> take on a, uh, a momentum of their own, right? Yeah. So you know, when human beings start working in packs, you know, they're uh, you know just you know if you, gosh, you can watch what happens when mobs get together. You know, if there's a there's a, mm-hmm. an animating energy that can mm-hmm. get behind the thing that becomes larger than the group itself. That propels it forward right, right. in ways that can be really destructive. And I don't know what to call that, but it, it does – people are gripped, you know, yeah. in groups. And, uh, and also people just feel there's a certain safety you feel like, you know, behind a, a screen. You can just hit a button and, you right, know. Right, So reactivity just becomes like, well, you're a trader, you know, you know, bang. <laughs> yes, yep. Boom, you know, so. A lot of know, reactivity in trading. A lot sure. of reactivity. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> And um, it's interesting, you did mention politics. It seems as if that uh, mob mentality does influence our politics, where a lot of yeah. politics seems as if uh, people are joining tribes. People are saying, you know, I'm on this team, rather than looking at particular issues. Yeah, I. Um, it's a very complicated scheme out there, isn't it? It's... Yeah. it's uh, um, what we have to learn is compassion, and we have to learn. Um, we have to move beyond just being tolerant with people. You know, who wants to be tolerated? I want to be loved. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Don't you? I mean, it's like you know. Yeah. So we have to figure out how to become bigger than just tolerant. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but to understand other human beings in their brokenness and yeah. receive them that way, and 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 even when they, you know, act heinously, we have to figure out a way to pony up with with great love yeah and separate the action that's heinous from someone being inherently heinous which i don't personally believe people are no well it's it's a very complicated landscape yeah that's for sure a lot of our listeners you know struggle with mental disorder and um or you know not go to therapy maybe they don't have a mental disorder or a diagnosis but they go to therapy or want to go to therapy um could you talk about maybe how the enneagram could help somebody who's facing those issues sure i mean i think um uh the enneagram could be a helpful tool 
really just for just about anyone. But I wouldn't necessarily say that it would be a good replacement for therapy for people that are, you know, doing mm-hmm. doing real work, you yeah. know, around trauma, for example, or around addictions or things like that. Could it be a good tool for, you know, growing a self-awareness and, you know, understanding our typical ways of thinking, acting, and feeling in the world? Um, sure. But, you know, I wouldn't... Uh, I, I guess I'm always the guy that's talking people off the Enneagram ledge because <laughs> it is such a great tool. I mean, it's, yeah. it is it is really, really great. But I'm always like, well, you know, hold it lightly, you know, <laughs> yeah. hold it lightly. You know, um, it seems like a because, similar double-edged sword to other things like maybe diagnosing where it, it is a powerful tool and can help with self-understanding, but it has its limits. Right. It does have its limits. And so to your point, I think, you know, when you start especially talking about you know, you know, d- mental disorders, you know, bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, you know, things yeah. like that. You know, the Enneagram is not the solution, you know, is not, a, is not the, is not a solution, but it, for many, many people that are out there doing life, it's, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice tool. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, people feel the appeal, you know, something like the Enneagram, or another. I know it's not technically a personality test, but uh, I think people feel this with personality tests as well, that there is this natural curiosity and yearning for self-understanding that makes something like the Enneagram naturally appealing. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's like anything else. It's, you know, the, my favorite quote in the book is that George Box quote, that he's a statistician who said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. <laughs> I like that a lot. And I'd, yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely love that quote. It's like yeah. my quote of all time in the last year. Because, you know, if you've taken college economics, you know that when you study economics, those models are wrong, yeah. right? Yep. Uh, um, I was an econ major, so yep. <laughs> okay. So you know they're wrong, but they're a good, they're a useful starting place into the conversation yeah. about, you know, economics, yeah. right? You to illustrate start some- concepts or enrich your understanding oh. of the truth, even if they aren't the truth themselves. Right, even if they're not a hundred percent accurate, you know. So, mm-hmm. for example, take roadmaps. Right, you guys don't remember roadmaps, right? But you had Hagstrom maps. <laughs> your dad's in the front seat with this gigantic map, right? You know, or even take a GPS for that matter. If you, uh, you know, want to take a look at this, there I got it is. A big yeah. old road atlas. <laughs> okay, so now, yeah. you know, can you even with the you know even if I you know launch you know Google Maps, they are not a hundred percent accurate, right? I mean, they yeah. are not. 100% accurate, but they'll get you there. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. is it accounting for every little teeny bend in the road and every little, you know, whatever? No, of course it isn't, but it's reasonably. They're getting pretty good, though. They're getting pretty good. <laughs> they're, they're pretty, they're pretty going, accurate. Right? Yeah. It's, you, you know, you, you know, they get you there, even though they may not be 100% accurate. You know, I think these things are roadmaps and systems that can get us into a, a launching place, into a convers- a much deeper conversation with ourselves about the mystery of our own lives. And yeah, you got to start somewhere. They're wrong, but they're useful. Would you say that extends to, would you apply that same uh, methodology you're talking about to diagnosing? And does it just something that will help people get to where they need to go? Well, I mean, I think there's, there are inherent problems with labeling people, you know? Um, (laughs) Right. And, and, but I think it really also depends on, you know, what, what we're, you know, cluster of disorders we're talking about. And, you know, uh, 
you know, in some situations, I think they're just codes that we use for insurance companies, you know, I mean, so yeah, it, it, yeah. And in other situations, I think it's helpful to be able to die, you know, kind of ascribe a term to a constellation or a suite of, you know, patterns or symptoms that, you know, tend to equal X, you know, um, right. at the same time, to label somebody something is never really a, never really helpful. You know, it's not a good thing. So yeah. someone might have some condition, but they are not the condition itself. They are not the problem. Right. right? The problem. The problem is the problem. They are not the problem. Right. That's the old mantra. Right. They. You are not the problem. The problem is the problem. <laughs> so and it's a construction, right? I mean, it's it's something we're attributing to the problem that we think can model it, but as you said, it's it's just not perfect. I mean, it's helpful shorthand for us, I guess, in terms of language, but yeah. um, people are far more complicated than any label is ever going to really get them to, you know? I mean, take, for example, depressive disorders, right? Yeah. At what point is it someone, you know, um, you're trying to figure out differences between someone who's suffering from a major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder, right? Yeah. And where are they at this big table? You know, are they seated at either end, you know, where it's clear or are they somewhat of the chairs in between? You know, it's like, well, I, you know, at a certain point, I mean, I know doctors who say, well, I just basically figured out by the medication sometimes, you know, it's like, well, that medication, works, so I guess it must have been that. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, again, it's, we're so complex. This whole thing is so complicated. Right. Um, and yet, you know, we, we are helping people to, find their way a lot of the time, you know? Yeah. So it's such an interesting topic cause it's, 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 it's a, it's very much a double edged sword where it can help people. And, uh, you know, even if it's not completely true and when you debate it or when you question that truth, I think some people might mistake it for not validating the problem, you know, the real problem, the symptoms, right. what yeah. someone's experiencing and that's not really for me that's not what it's about it's about trying to get to the core of what's going on and it's i think part of the issue or the challenge is we know so little and uh we're still trying to understand the medications we prescribe mm -hmm. we're still trying to understand the brain chemistry behind these disorders and so you know whereas google maps maybe is 99% right maybe it's just missing a little curvature here or there um Sometimes I wonder, you know, is this 99% right? It seems like there's a lot we don't know. Yeah. Well, I think you can maintain the posture. Like, <laughs> I don't know where I was the other day, but someone said to me, we're sort of, a, sort of a humorous disagreement about something. I said, are you telling me that you, you think that you're, you're really right about that? And he goes, no, I just think I'm less wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's not funny. That's actually a brilliant, that's a brilliant response. If your posture is always like, well, I don't know. I think, you know, well, 100 years ago, they were wrong. And, and today I just say we're less wrong. Yeah. And 100 years from now, they'll be less wrong than I am. We're no longer extracting people's blood to get the demons out or anything. you know. Right. So. Right. So today we do this and it's less wrong than them. And in a hundred years from now, they'll look at us and they'll have to say, well, we're that much less wrong than they were. But yeah, we're still, yeah. maybe. you know, we're still not all the way there yet. Sure. I think there's a temptation too to go, you know, if you swing fully on the spectrum against Western medicine and uh, maybe this is kind of like new age a little bit, but I think there's a temptation to say, um, 
there's no progress happening here because we're doing things wrong still today and people in the future will look back and say they got so much wrong. But as you said, you know, you can get less wrong. And I do believe you can make progress that way, even if there are, yeah. pro- you know, there, I'm sure there are things people will look back and say they were so dumb, but uh, it doesn't mean there's no progress happening. Yeah, it's a, it's a very big mistake to look back on history and assume that the people before you were dumb. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. Aristotle was not dumb, you know, and <laughs> yeah. n- nor was Plato. And so, you know, um, they had less, maybe they had fewer tools at their disposal, but, but they, weren't less, they were not less intelligent or less wise. And right. so in some ways, I, I guess we just have to maintain that posture that, that we – we are stumbling forward, you know, and, and, you know, that's, I just try to maintain a, um, a positive view of, of, of things that way. So. And we don't have it all figured out. I think like both for humanities march forward through centuries and millennia and for someone's own life, you know, people always say in your twenties, you think you have it figured out. And then you realize in your thirties, you didn't, but now you do. And then you realize in your forties, you didn't, but now you do. (laughs) Um, I'm trying, you know, I strive to go through life always knowing that I have no clue or that I have little clue, increasingly, maybe a little more clue. Um, and I think maybe that applies to the larger picture of human development too. Well, the longer you can, the more you can hold on to that belief that you don't know, mm-hmm. the more you'll know. This is the this is the great paradox. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, the more the more you realize you don't know, the more you'll know. It only because the moment you start stop thinking, you know, you start thinking I do know, is the moment you're going to stop growing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because like, you, you don't need to be told. You don't need no, to learn anything. No, you know everything. So, you know. Um, this is, again, just perennial wisdom, right? I mean, Jesus used to talk about having the mind of a child. The Buddha talked about beginner's mind. You know, you can go on and on and on. You just, you, you just have the mind that says, I don't know. And so when you can do that, it doesn't mean you don't have convictions. It doesn't mean you don't have ideas. It doesn't mean you don't have principles or, you know, whatever. It just means that you, you're able to hold things lightly and to, mm-hmm. to, to maintain a space of openness and receptivity to alternative views. You know, to ideas that might upend yours, to have the humility to let go of them when they're not true. Yeah. You know, um, but you know that's not that's not easy. <laughs> they're you know, it, it causes you know distress for people. You yeah. know, so yeah, ignorance is bliss <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. For yeah. for a limited. <laughs> for a limited time only. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like, uh, and I like that you talk about, you know, you can be skeptical without denouncing things. You can think, I'm sure there's a lot still to figure out. I might be wrong. You might be wrong without denouncing anyone or anything or without thinking, you know, giving up on it all, right? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in most situations, I think, you know, in in sort of the day-to-day ways that we operate in the world, um, that... That's that's probably true. I think, you know, there are there are times when people are engaged in things that need to be denounced, need to be named and denounced. Um, sure. And the way to do that, though, you know, is in a perfect world. It seems to me that the great world changers, whether it's you know Nelson Mandela or Desmond Tutu or others, as long as you ground that denouncement in love, 
in, in calling the other out to be what they truly are, which is to own their own beauty and to not act in ways that are in, in you know, contra or inconsistent with their own beauty. Um, uh, you know, then you just become the other side of the screaming argument if you don't do it from that space. Right. Is there anything about, a lot of our listeners have written in to us just talking about the stigma that they feel around surrounding mental disorder and even going to the therapy. And I definitely, I, I felt that when I first went to a counselor. And I, I wonder, what would you say to them? Is there anything that you would change about the world right now that would make it easier for people to not feel that stigma? Mm. Yeah, boy, that's a tough one. I Thankfully, it's a lot less than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it used to be a much worse environment for for people. You know, I think about my parents' generation before. Gosh, yeah. You know, it it was a, a terrible stigma. Um, it was it was a stain on the family. You know, if somebody was struggling along with depression or schizophrenia, it's interesting. My dad, my dad's brother, was a schizophrenic, and uh, I never met him. He was in a state hospital, and but they had a story uh, about him that linked his illness to a wartime trauma, and it really wasn't. It was schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just was plain old schizophrenia, right? Mm-hmm. But they had to ground it in something that destigmatized it, and otherwise, in other words, made it made it the product of a heroic thing. Um, and it was never discussed. He was never really talked about. I mean, it's like he barely existed uh, except for the occasional Saturdays where my dad would get in the car and go see him, you know. Um, so thankfully, we've come a long way since then, you yeah. know, since people, since people hid their uncles and their daughters in, their, in the attic, you know, then they were, you know, uh, struggling with mental disorder, you know. Um, and, you know, with those people, I had a – so I'll tell you a little priest story, okay. So I – I had somebody come to me that was really struggling with having to take medication for something, right? They're a very religious person. And I don't come from a conservative sort of religious tradition, but uh-huh. they'd come from a very conservative tradition. They said, I'm just, I'm really, you know, I think I should be able to pray my way out of this thing, you know, or, <laughs> or something. And, and, and I, I, listen, I get it, you know, I mean, this, they're just coming from where they come from. And, um, and a, a fine hearted person, you know, a really just a, 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 a sweethearted person. And I just said to myself, look, every morning when you get up, I want you to take that pill like you're taking communion. And I said, because in it, there are the prayers of millions of people in decades, millennia before you who prayed for this solution. And you are the beneficiary of those prayers. And so if that's what's holding your life together, you know, if that's what's keeping you out of the hospital, I just think God's in it. Hmm. That's cool. Hmm. So I think we have to sort of, you know, upend our ways of looking at things at times. And, uh, but I'm, you know, I think the more people talk about it, the less stigmatic, less of a stigma it is. And, um, and, and the more people who are leaders in the world and different silos of influence can talk about their experience with it. Yeah. And I think it's brave and good. Yeah. That's definitely a challenge, you know, leaders talking about it or people in high positions. Cause I think that's still where that conversation can be lacking where mm-hmm. uh, the stigma is felt more strongly. If you know, a big job or a CEO position or 
maybe being a politician or something is involved where you see fewer people speaking out in those positions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it would be so good for the world if, if there was more open dialogue, um, among people. I have to say that's one of the beautiful benefits of the internet, right? In some ways is that people do have access to others Mm, and conversations with others, you know, Mm -hmm. where they can find support, um, and, and hopefully some, uh, some places of safety for them to go and talk about their experience. Well, and the freedom that anonymity gives you on a forum or something might allow people to open up who wouldn't be otherwise, which then lets people see that and maybe open up themselves. Mm -hmm. You bet. Well, um, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I want, we probably should wrap it up. But Ian, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anywhere that you want people to go find you online? Sure. Well, they can just go to iancron.com, and they can get our book, The Road Back to You, and, and read that. Or um, and they can get that at any uh, – you can get on Amazon or any fine market. You know, any fine bookseller will have it. And uh, <laughs> um, and I wish, uh, wish everybody in your, your listenership well. Yeah, thanks a ton. I think this was really, I mean, this was covered so many different topics. It was really interesting for me. <laughs> I kind of forgot we were recording and just started talking about stuff I'm interested in, but it was it was very, very good conversation. Organic conversation. Yeah. I'm so glad. So yeah, right. we'll uh, talk Peace. to you later. Okay, see you later. Bye, thank Bye. you. You bet. As always, to stay in touch with us by email and hear about the podcast behind the scenes, you can visit us on redeemingdisorder.com. And special thanks to Hetty, who donated our theme music from her song Shipwrecking Me from her latest album. Be sure to check it out at hettymusic.com. Join us next week, and until then, we hope you feel empowered to start a conversation of your own. Mm